Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hitendra Wadwa is the founder of the Mentora Institute and Foundation and a professor of practice at Columbia Business School, where he teaches Columbia's most popular MBA leadership course. His widely acclaimed research and teaching on leadership have been covered by media outlets like Fortune, CNN, Psychology Today, BBC, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, and many, many more. And today, he's here to chat about his new book titled Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, How Your Five Core Energies Hold the Key to Success. Hitendra, welcome. Thank you, Jason. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and you know our, our audience here today. It's great to have you, and you know, I was very attracted to the title of your book, Inner Mastery, Outer Impact, which you know, I, I think that concept to, to many people, many of our listeners, I'm sure, is very attractive. Um, so at the highest level, I, I know you dive deep into this into the, in the book, how can we achieve inner mastery? I think the um, one main thought I want to offer is that it is more something that we are invited to awaken to rather than achieve. You know, it's a realization that at the very center of our being already lies, you know, a wealth of love and wisdom and joy and peace that any or all of us are really rightfully, rightfully so hungering for, you know, and, and uh, so many times we turn that lens and that attention outward to seek it in worldly consumption and glory and connections and and all of that and um uh and yet um it's an ever present core of who we are within and so and so how do we achieve in a mastery you know uh there, there are you know different paths up the same mountaintop you know to that highest peak of human potential um you know i am personally very very inspired by the idea that, um, you know, each of us is being invited by life to find our path, to find our teacher, our teaching, our approach, that there are certain laws of human nature that ultimately govern, you know, uh, what it is that takes us towards our core and what kinds of things take us away from it. And at the same time, you know, it doesn't have to be a singular path, a singular teaching that is, in fact, relevant, relevant and right for for all of us, you know. And, you know, I, I really loved... Um, the way Mother Teresa once said, you know, she she said, um, I um, I love I love all faiths, and I am in love with my faith. Um, and so this idea of both finding you know the path that is right for you, uh, and at the same time being very appreciative and you know almost cheering of uh, those who are earnestly on their own quest to discover their core, to pursue in a mastery and. And doing it, you know, perhaps with a variant of or a different, you know, path and in a different position and time, you know, and where they are on it, is is itself, I think, a part of the journey, you know, to recognize the those diversity of paths that get us there. Now, my attempt in this book has been to seek to offer, you know, a few of those paths uh, by connecting them with the energies that we activate within us, and uh, there are at least you know four of those that I think uh, to me, um, I, I I found an opportunity to research, codify, teach, and ultimately offer in the book. So you mentioned finding one's path, the power of the journey. Let's for a moment talk about your breakthrough moment, which ultimately led to this book. It starts at a very early stage. I was 
I think just about 10 years old when I got very drawn to what is life about and, you know, what is existence and what is my connection with, with humanity beyond just, you know, just my family and, uh, and what about the universe? You know, those stars out there, I feel like they're speaking to me and I rightfully feel like I'm, you know, I want to see the whole universe as my home and how, how can one really experience that? And so these questions would come up and I was really fortunate to have grown up in uh, a culture, you know, like India, where these are questions that are not, um, you know, in any way strange, you know, to uh, explore and ask and uh, discover. And, um, you know, there have been truth seekers through the ages across all cultures, but India has been in some ways, you know, especially uh, enriched by, you know, some of those discoveries over, over, over the centuries and millennia. And so I was able to discover scriptures and teachers and had conversation like this with my parents and others and saw them themselves go on a spiritual journey. So that was one, I would say, a very pivotal, you know, shift moment for me, just around the age of 10, getting to start to access, you know, a set of kind of insights and ideas more from the mystic traditions, you know, from not just India, but, but around the world. Um, but then that was by itself only an initial stirring, I would say. And it got intensified by the time I was about 17 when I went to an ashram in India and kind of like wanted to give up on the material existence and really get deeply steeped in what the spiritual teaching was, you know, of that yoga-based kind of, you know, ashram path that I was I was connected with, the monastics that, that I was connected with, the monks. And yet the pull of the world was there and I really wasn't ready yet to give it all up. And so... I went back, you know, into into the world and pursued the, you know, dreams of success and grandeur and kind of accomplishment and ambition that, you know, any or all of us, you know, are, are invested in. And so it then took really another about 17 years, really. Um, I had to live another cycle of 17 years through before in my mid-30s, I finally reached that point where I was feeling quite in a sense unfulfilled from within while being very enriched from without. So from the outside engaging and achieving, you know, the usual kinds of things about the schools I'm going to and the profession and the organizations I'm working for and all of that. But it's feeling increasingly so from within a sense of just um, growing dryness, you know, of spirit and heart in terms of what I felt I was born for and I wanted to discover and yet I wasn't doing. So I finally, you know, bit the bullet and started to commit to a meditation practice that had been introduced to me very early, but that I hadn't really been able to make a commitment to pursue uh, and once I got there in my mid-30s, made it a daily pursuit and over time grew, you know, my commitment to it, um, it's been it's been the greatest blessing of my life, you know, and it's uh, transformed um, so much, not just of, you know, my connection with my own, you know, core and myself from within, but really given me a whole new frame through which to experience life, engage with life and, you know, offer up, you know, my, my energies and, um, you know, whatever it is I can to be of service and support, you know, to, to the world. So yes, much of a human journey still being made and pursued, but within that, this um, awakening of something quite, quite special from within that uh, meditation has been a key, you know, for me to unlock. Well, what's so interesting about you is you teach at Columbia Business School and, <laughs> and hear, hear, hearing you describe your experience, you're talking about meditation, you know, in the book, you talk about transcendence, you're talking about purpose, wisdom, love, self-realization, growth. I haven't heard you mention, nor did I see in the book, the P&L, EBITDA, 
<laughs> you know, all the, you know, accounting, you know, and I know you teach different type of uh, course at the business school, but, you know, I, I think it's important to note, you know, on, on some level, you mentioned pursuing, you know, pursuing the things that everyone, you know, is pursuing and like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to get that thing. I'm going to try to get that raise. I want to get that job. And there's there's nothing wrong about about goal setting and, and, and trying to you know attain some some level of success whether it's material or however you choose to define success but it seems like people end up unhappy and kind of lost and I'm going to come back to I think the why something you know you lead with you talk about these core energies and one of the first ones in the book you discuss is purpose. You know, purpose with a capital P. If I if I go to the why we're unhappy or whether we're chasing the right or wrong goal, or we have the right or wrong values or the relationships, it's to me so much comes back to purpose. So let's start with purpose and how should we all think about and approach purpose with a capital P? I love that distinction. You know, the small and capital P. Um, yeah, I mean. Um, at some level, it's the holy grail, right? I mean, any or all of us are searching for, um, you know, a greater sense of meaning and fulfillment and and a real purpose to what it is that we are embarked on in life. And it's becoming increasingly so, I think, a very expressed need out there. Um, and yet, I think there are some myths and misunderstandings about it that uh, I'd like to offer up for us to consider and challenge, you know, in, in, our, in our path to purpose. You know, one thing, for instance, in my case was... Um, Early on, when I got very invested in the idea of leading a more meaning-oriented life, a more consciously chosen kind of direction in life, I thought it was about, you know, five or six or seven or eight different things, you know, and I had to kind of like balance them and do them all. And this was going to be my life and this was going to be my trade-offs. And then, you know, I meet this one of my mentors and he he kind of like makes this, you know, shape with me of like putting his arms together in the form of a triangle. And, and he asked me, Tendra, let me ask you this. What's the one thing that you really want out of life? And I was stunned. I'm like, what do you mean by one, you know, sir? Like, how about six or seven or eight? You know, there's something to do with my family, something to do with my profession, something to do with this. Uh, and, and he just paused and smiled. And he said, you know, you know, just think about it. Don't have to answer this question right now. And then he made the shape with his arm like a triangle. And at that point, I didn't understand. But um, over time, I did. Over time, I did. And one thing I realized is that there's incredible power, incredible power when we ultimately are able to distill, you know, the direction in our life to that one thing, not to that bucket list of a checklist of things that we want to experience over the course of a life or we want to do over the course of a life, et cetera. But ultimately that one thing, and and some people feel like, oh, wait a second, but if it's that one thing, then what, what are you saying? Are you going to sacrifice your health? Are you going to sacrifice your friendships, your family, your profession? What are you, you know, isn't that an imbalanced thing, just one thing? But that's the wrong way of thinking about it because when I say the one thing, I, I don't mean that you have to you know, eliminate your responsibilities and engagement with these different silos, you know, of the things that you, you know, you, you engage with in life, you know, these relationships, these people, your own self, your growth and other things. But it's that there's a one integrative thread through all of that. And in fact, it starts to dissolve these silos and all the moments of your life start to be imbued with a certain 
you know, kind of fusion of meaning that is coming from that one thing. You know, I'll give you an example. Viktor Frankl, he's a beautiful man, right? He, um, as, as, as I'm sure you know, right, wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And often he was out there helping people realize that their suffering, their angst, everything was coming from a lack of clarity about what it is that their life stood for and what their meaning was. And then he was asked once, he, he was asked, you know, Dr. Frankl, you know, you're doing so much to help us you know, find our meaning. What is, you know, what is the meaning of your life? You know, what's the, what's the purpose of your life? And he smiled and he looked at them, you know, and he said, my purpose is to help you find your purpose, you know? And, and, and so everything that he did was informed and guided by that one central ethos, you know? And, and so, so that's, that's one idea, which is like to be on this almost like romantic, like sort of, you know, engagement with life to ask yourself, what is it that I'm meant to pursue? What is it that I'm meant to choose? And what is that one direction that in the finiteness of my life, I'm meant to invest and direct all my energy towards? You know, that's one thing. Now, the other thing I would offer, though, is that we have to all be very cautious. We have to be very cautious because the risk we run is that we go down the path of Alexander the Great. You know, he is considered great, justifiably so in some regard, because at his time, the currency of greatness was how much territory you capture and you you rule over and he was the greatest of the greats you know from that regard i mean you know among the greeks i mean basically at that point he conquered as much of the known world as, as there was and why did he do that why did he do that because his mother had told him that he was a very very special human being he was born of immaculate conception there was a bolt of lightning that struck a womb and and he was actually you know, the son, not of a king, but of this God, God's use, and he was meant to rule over the world. So that becomes his framework. That becomes his core belief system, and it guides him, and it shapes him, and it directs him to his destiny in that life. And yet, at some point, he gets to encounter these yogis in India, and he starts to see how simple their life is, and yet how profound and beautiful and liberated they are. And he has a couple of soul-searching conversations with uh, you know, one of their leaders, and it, it really moves and stakes and stirs him from within. And it reminds him of his conversations with his teacher, Aristotle, you know, from some time back when he was in Greece and he was growing up. And yet he is just so pulled, so pulled by that hunger and that expectation of people around him to continue to espouse that one purpose of his, you know, which is to rule over that he wasn't able to actually make, you know, make a significant change. And then, you know, just a couple of years, you know, from that encounter with the yogis, he ended up, you know, getting to fall sick and dying. And then within a few years, his empire collapsed, you know, because it really wasn't, you know, kind of really built with any real solidity of a foundation. And I offer that up because you and I and all of us, right, we ultimately are fueled by our beliefs. You know, I call them like your bedrock beliefs. And our sense of purpose will ultimately arise from what those beliefs are. And the more we engage with the hard questions, the hard questions, the ones that, you know, science can perhaps, you know, really not give us full insight and information on, that logic can not fully answer for us, that, that have to come from a deeper felt place within, you know, questions like what's my relationship with the universe and why do good things happen to bad people and, you know, what happens after death and, you know, things like that. The more we engage with those questions, wrestle with them and come up to some clarity for our own selves, you know, about our bedrock beliefs like those, the more we will be guided to our true purpose rather than a blindsided purpose where we may have gone down a certain path and then only to awaken at some point, perhaps, to the realization, oh my God, oh my God, like everything I've been pursuing has been based on a foundation that I am now challenging and questioning and wondering if actually those were the things that made life worthy or not, you know? So, 
Anyway, so that, you know, I, we, we could speak more. Of course, the book book goes into five stages of getting to purpose from purely being stirred to actually going on a search to getting to define and then focus and ultimately fuse it with your purpose. Those are the five stages. But for now, I thought maybe, I don't know what you think. Uh, yeah, well, I, I definitely, I, I, I love that you're focusing on purpose. And I definitely want to walk through the five stages with you because there's one area, there's so much to dive into the book. I think that's the one area we want to spend time on. But Something I've always been curious about, you know, I, I obviously I, I feel a strong sense of purpose. I love my work. Um, there was a long path, a long entrepreneurial, well, maybe not long, you know, depending on how you view, view time, but it was almost like a decade entrepreneurial path to get to my buddy green. And then years later, you know, in the beginning was unclear whether it was not going to be successful. So it took a while, it took a minute to say the least, but are there some people that just kind of don't don't feel that calling, don't ask those questions, and that they, they just kind of, you know, go along, do their thing, go to work, get a get a get a paycheck, support their family, and there's nothing wrong with that, and enjoy watching sports and or whatever it might be, and, and, and that's it. Do you think some people are hardwired differently with regards to their purpose, or do those people end up later in life, regretting maybe choices they make, or are they just wired differently? Are we all different there? Do we all have that innate yearning for, for more and we're just not tapping into it? What's your take? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. I, I, I do think that there are uh, lots of people who are you know, in that uh, stage that comes even before the stirring, you know, I don't even consider it uh, one of the five stages of finding purpose. And so I offer in my book, you know, uh, a description of that stage as just, you know, lying even prior, let's call it stage zero before you get to stage one where you're stirred, you know, you're stirred and something is happening and you're looking and seeking now because uh, because you feel like there's there's got to be something more, you know, than what meets the eye. But that stage before is what I call the cruising stage, right? And the cruising stage is exactly what you described. You know, you're waking up every morning, going through the motions of the day and the way, you know, you and others around you are used to and and then expecting to just like keep things there, you know, uh, and, and just uh, you know, live that life. And then, of course, sometimes a shock can come you know, to the system or just the, you know, the the ravages of aging or something and the loss and, you know, slowing down of life that it leads to, which can at times open us up to new uh, reflections and revelations. Uh, it may be that actually we still don't, we still don't awaken all the way perhaps even to our cemetery or grave. Um, but, but that is okay. I mean, that's a community of folks who just never arrived, you know, at that stage of stirring. Um, and I think um, that said, when I talk to at least, you know, the executives and students in my class, I find that most of them relate very well to the idea of stirring, right, which is the first stage, that from time to time, they do feel a certain like whisper from within, a certain hunger or desire from within. Maybe they've watched a really inspiring movie or, you know, taken a walk in nature or spoken to somebody who's very mission-oriented or just otherwise reflected on, you know, how their career and life is going and feeling like, you know what, here I was thinking that I'll be at the peak of joy, satisfaction, whatever, but I'm still seeking, I'm still searching, something isn't fully fulfilled yet, maybe this path is not going to, you know, permanently, sustainably get me there. Um, and so that sense of stirring, I do find quite consistently is there with at least the people that I'm engaging with, right? Now, how many of us can 
really seize that bull by the horns and really make it a very conscious pursuit of like, okay, what else is there to my life than what meets the eye and that what I'm being expected of and asked about from my family and others. Now that's that's a conscious choice and a choosing we have to we have to take on. And you know, some will invest much more in it and with much more passion, more courage, more curiosity than others will. Uh, and if you do, and if you do, then from there on the breakthroughs start to come. Insights, guidance, perhaps a teacher, perhaps a, a role model, examples of others that you're drawn to, uh, stirrings from within that guide you and inform you as to, you know, maybe it's time to walk away from certain things in life. Maybe maybe I should experiment with this and let's see how fulfilled I get if I do X versus Y. And once you get there, then you're now in the, if you want to call it the grip, you know, the grip of this, this beautiful force of purpose that is making you realize that actually there's more fulfillment, there's more joy, there's more richness that I'm getting from anchoring myself and my pulls from within than I do from just uh, the, you know, traditional trappings, you know, of uh, material success in life. I also don't want to, not cruising there, there are definitely many days where i just say where i say to myself man i just want to want to cruise for a while i got too much purpose i'm working too hard i just want to you know cruising is very appealing to me right now i want a little bit more of that uh but i, I always have been curious uh in, 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 about purpose and you know when i think of misconceptions around purpose you don't necessarily have to quit your job, start a company, do you know, leave and go to Tibet and and visit the Dalai Lama. You don't necessarily have to do something big and bold to find purpose. Purpose can be cultivated in the day to day, in your everyday life, without changing much. Yeah, I mean that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful observation and a very liberating one, right? For so many of us who are, you know, deeply committed to also serving our family, meeting our financial goals, and are just, um, you know, by circumstances thrown into certain contexts and situations, have certain training, have certain value that we can offer the world, and we feel entrapped in that. And yet we have this purity of heart and purpose that wants us to perhaps do more than what we think. Let's say, for example, the commercial enterprise we're working for is perhaps like, you know, putting out there. Uh, and so to that end, I want to share a story, right? And so uh, Gandhi, um, Gandhi had in his early 20s gone to London, you know, picked up an education as a barrister in law and then come back to, um, you know, come back to, uh, to India. And um, when he came back, uh, there was this gentleman called Rechand that he encountered in Mumbai. And this Rechand became like a very captivating role model for Gandhi for the manner in which he seemed to express some deeply, you know, spirit-driven qualities. You know, he had a certain steadiness, he had a certain centeredness, a certain capacity to transcend and look beyond, you know, just the ordinary everyday humdrum of life and all of that stuff. And this guy I'm talking about, Rechand, was actually just about two years older to Gandhi. And he was a diamond merchant. So he was in this, you know, kind of store in, in India, in Mumbai, basically transacting in, in, you know, in jewelry. But while doing that, he seemed to exude this aura, this inner charisma, 
this this capacity to really express his core in a way that really on a lifelong basis you know really captivated gandhi when he went later to south africa and started to go deeper into his own spiritual discovery and his you know pursuit of purpose he would often write to rechan get letters back from him to guide him a little bit on these deeper questions in life and so you know if somebody who's in a jewelry store as a diamond merchant being able to actually exude something which is so much more than purely the material and is able to stir the hearts of someone as perceptive as you know this future mahatma then who are you and i to say like ah no in my position where i am and what i'm meant to do and all that right now it's so constrictive it's restrictive how can i really truly express my core you know where i am so um again that doesn't give you a formula for how to do it and you know the book goes a little bit more into how to map your values to your role you know in, in life and at work and in parenting and other other roles you play um and find a way to kind of express your essence in any or all of those roles uh but you know i just wanted to offer up through that example of rachan that um you know the opportunity is there for any or all of us to be true to ourselves wherever life has placed us and let's talk a little bit about the stages if you will in cultivating purpose happy to so as we have already spoken about um you know the cruising stage is where one is just kind of going through the motions of life very satisfied and pleased and comfortable or you know getting frustrated or disappointed here and there but fundamentally not willing to question that there's anything more to life than just what meets our eyes sensorily and materially and then we get to the stirring and that stirring is that first stage of the five and stirring could come from a shock to the system perhaps a personal loss or a setback uh, or it could just be a, literally a calling you know an awakening from within of something you know one of my students went through one of these awakening moments where she just came back once from school and told her mom that very day mom you know look at this picture this is a cancer cell it's a smart cell and i'm going to outsmart it i'm going to be a cancer doctor and she's grown up very much to be an oncologist she has done some incredible research to uh, eliminate you know the risk of um, you know of uh, you know fatal you know um you know outcomes from certain forms of of cancer and is just doing beautiful work you know out there uh, so incredible right like as somebody who is in middle school and kind of knew you know what that calling was for her from within um but then for many of us there are moments where we get certain inklings certain pulls and in those moments we feel like there's something more i'm deeply valuing something or i'm deeply pained about something and we may not be paying attention to it you know and so over time if we start to awaken to paying attention to those things and connecting those dots they might lead us to a little bit more of information and guidance and insight as to what perhaps life is inviting uniquely for us to express as a purpose so that's the stirring stage then you get to searching and searching can be partly through connecting those inner dots like we just spoke about partly through studying and reading the scriptures or lives of role models that we are very drawn to talking to people who we are very drawn to the kind of values they express the kind of purpose they have and so a series of both inner introspections and outer explorations can ultimately take us to a place where you know more texture is coming to um, to bear for us as to what it is that we are more drawn to as the core beliefs and the values and the direction that we think uh, give meaning you know to our life from that second stage of search we then come to the third stage of define and in the define stage as the search starts to yield benefits we start to actually you know 
choose for ourselves and codify for ourselves very consciously, not on the basis purely of inheriting something from our parents or you know our social system or our school or the organization that we are part of or the friend circle we are in, but choosing consciously for ourselves. What are the things we stand for? You know, and I found there that it's very important to see that as an ever-evolving level of understanding of that relationship between you and the universe. Because, you know, as an example, which I share in the book, I was very drawn to nonviolence very early on. But my understanding of what it truly means to be nonviolent in a practical way in the world has been very much evolutionary, you know, over the years. I first thought it was purely about, like, I don't want to, like, you know, just get into physical brawls with other boys in school. But then it became something more than that. You know, it became more also about toning down the, um, you know, impulse at times to engage in emotional violence, you know, uh, hurting somebody, you know, or, or saying or doing something that has an emotional impact on the other person that is negative. But then I came to a point where I realized that um, actually violence can also just happen in our thoughts, in just the, um, you know, unnecessary ways. And at times we criticize people, deprecate people, look down on people, judge people. Gandhi really warned us that, that was in fact the seeds of violence came from, you know, the, the the very thoughts that we silently harbor in our own minds. And then it went beyond that to a place where I realized that it's not just about thoughts, emotions, and actions. You know, sometimes there are situations where you have to do it. You have to lay somebody off and, you know, kind of you have to have a hard conversation with somebody, you know, in the immediate moment, it might emotionally, you know, cause them some pain and, but for a higher purpose, you know, for the sake of the team or the organization or the family or their own ultimate long-term welfare, you're going to have that conversation. You're going to make that decision. Uh, and then yet again, I found in the Lincolns and the Gandhis who had to be thrust into those moments where they had to make some hard calls like that, they were striving. They were striving to do them with so much love and care and sensitivity that they could minimize the amount of damage, you know, that uh, it, it did to the other party emotionally or physically or what have you. And so ultimately, my definition of nonviolence today is that you know, thou shalt, I shall, you know, strive to my ultimate to in thought, speech or action, emotionally or physically, you know, never harm anybody else. And if for the sake of a higher purpose, I have to sometimes engage in that, I ought to do it, you know, in a way that minimizes that harm. I should really strive to do it in a way that minimizes the harm. And and if I, you know, stumble and fall, which I will from time to time, then I should be, you know, willing to apologize and adjust and uh, and change my approach. And so, you know, who knows what my definition of nonviolence will be five years from now, but that's the evolution I've gone through over the last, what, 20, 30 years since I've been introspecting on this, you know. So that's the third stage, defining. It's a very vibrant stage, a very active stage. It's not just a simple black and white, write five things down and then you made it, you know, it's, it's ever evolving. Then you get to focusing, and that's the fourth stage. And in focusing, in some ways, the key there is to know that you can't be everything to everybody at the same time. You can't be good in all the ways that you want to all the time. You, you're going to have to make some trade-offs. You're going to have to make some calls. You're going to have to say no to lots of things in the service of your purpose. And so what are the things in life that you're willing to give up in order to gain so much more from the fulfillment you get, from the dedication to your values and your purpose? Perhaps it's, you know, at times dialing down on certain relationships you know, perhaps dialing down on certain commitments, certain hobbies, being open to disappointing some people in order to be able to gain what you feel is um, peace of mind from within that you're doing your best in the finite amount of energy and time you have in the service of your purpose. So that's focusing for us, having those, you know, 
negotiations, you know, in a tactful way, in a thoughtful way, sensitive way, making certain trade-offs, you know, doing for others while still protecting and, you know, serving your own interests in, in just the right way. It often is a very soul-searching phase of trying to understand your relationship with your family, with the community, you know, your organization and the world beyond. Um, and then and then finally, the fifth you know, stage after you get to focus is what I call fusion. And that is just such a wonderfully beautiful you know, point to get to where literally everything and anything that you're doing is being informed and guided and inspired by your purpose. And um, you know, I give a couple of stories and examples in the book about how in even everyday small moments, you, know, you see these people who are fused with their purpose just automatically, instinctually finding a way to map their purpose to whatever it is that they were being asked to do in, in that moment. And so that's that stage, you know, where, like I mentioned, this one mentor of mine was trying to help me with their triangle idea, that you progress from the base of the triangle where you're, you know, fairly unstructured and, you know, undirected, more gradually to more and more and more and more, more focus, ultimately to that point at the very vertex of the triangle where you're completely fused. I love it. I, 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 I love it. And I love how you describe the five stages. And I'm curious what are some of the common pitfalls, in your opinion, on that journey? Are there pitfalls everywhere? Are there certain ones? Is you know the number four hang people most people up, or is it or or is it just it's the journey and it's everywhere? I'm curious if there are specific areas, or at least in your experience. I respect that. You know, one pitfall I, I shared, which I faced, was when I didn't really fully tune in to that stirring that was happening when I was 17, and you know. In its full force, it only came back to me when I doubled my lifespan. You know, I was 20, 34 or so when it happened. So that's one pitfall, that we don't pay enough attention to our inner experience, to what our spirit is guiding and telling us. And we get so focused and, you know, engaged with just, and so comfortable and in some ways numbed, you know, by the pleasures of the, you know, of just the kind of the outer life and the affirmations we get from others that we let time just, you know, go by. Uh, so that's one thing just to be cautious about and be mindful of is like to pay attention, you know, to the inexperience. Another pitfall uh, can be where you um, set yourself up with purpose and you're a person of great ambition and drive. And so you focus a lot on quantitative purpose rather than, you know, qualitative purpose. You set big numbers for yourself, you know, that I want to change the lives of a million people or a billion people or what have you. Um, and the reason why, you know, that to me is a trap is because um, there are so many people who have had such meaningful lives and journeys on the basis of pursuing what you might call qualitative purpose. You know, I mentioned in the book the story of, you know, two of them and how they raised uh, this foster, you know, this child as, as, a, as foster parents, you know, as uh, adopted parents, and um, how this child ended up becoming this incredible human being. And now who should the credit for that incredible human being go to? To himself for being that incredible human being or in part to these two individuals who adopted him and nurtured him and, you know, sacrificed for him and guided him and all of that as well. Shouldn't we also laud these two people for what it is that they were able to manifest and do? And so that's the idea of qualitative versus quantitative purpose. I mean, some of us are meant for quantitative things and some of us are perhaps not meant or there might be a chapter in our life where we are meant to do more qualitative rather than quantitative. And if we get very pushed and always are assessing our worth and our 
you know, success with a purpose on the basis of the quantitative, then we sometimes can be very much limiting the choices and the fulfillment we can get from the very powerful transformative impact of the qualitative as well. So that's, you know, that's the second pitfall. And, and then the last one would be, you know, that I would offer is the one I, I, was, I was citing when I was talking about the power of saying no in focusing, which is that we, we don't say no. You know, we feel like, you know, I'm seeking to be good. I'm seeking to manifest good in the world. So if you come to me and you ask me to contribute to your cause, I should because like, you know, that's a good cause. And then if you come to me and you want me to do this, or if I get pulled in that direction or tomorrow, the world has an emotional surge about this one thing, I should walk down that path too and that path too and that path too. And the thing is like when you try to be everything to everybody, you know, at the end of the day, you're just not going to be able to be fully manifesting what it is that your unique gifts are. And uh, that way, as an example, I have so much respect. It's somewhat controversial among some some folks, but I have so much respect for Steve Jobs. You know, he just focused on his purpose, and it was to bring in that kind of fusion of design and technology and simplicity in, in the world. And in some ways, all of us have been touched by it, you know, whether it's through Apple products or beyond the design revolution. And at the same time, he just, he didn't really care too much about the billions of dollars that he was racking up in his bank account. And he was going to leave it to posterity and his family, perhaps, to think about the right sort of philanthropy you can do with a couple of billion dollars, but, you know, or three or four or whatever it is. But, I mean, at some level, that is chump change relative to the full impact he had by staying incredibly focused on, on his purpose and even having the courage and clarity to say, like, even being a billionaire right now, I don't have time to think about, you know, the charity with my billions. You know, that's for the future to decide. For now, I'm just going to keep working on working on my purpose. And you mentioned jobs. I, I also, in my head, hearing you say connecting the dots and the famous Steve Jobs commencement speech at Stanford saying you can only connect the dots looking backwards, not forwards, which is still one of my all-time favorite uh, quotations from him. Um, so in the book, you go, you know, we, we went deep on purpose. You also go very deep on wisdom, growth, love, self-realization, but we're, we're not going to go. I want people to, to pick up the book. <laughs> um, and, and you close with transcendence. <clears throat> and you have so many great anecdotes in the book. And one of my favorites <laughs> of all the people in all the places, you talk about transcendence, you tell a story about Elvis and Priscilla Presley visiting the self-realization fellowship Lake Shrine in LA, which many people in our world know about. So got to tell that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful discovery really for me. And um, I'm so glad it resonates with you. It's a timely moment, isn't it? Because the, this biopic on like Elvis has just come out in the theaters. I'm actually planning to go and watch it. I haven't seen it yet. Um, and as expected, you know, from everything I understand from the buzz, it's focusing on his outer ambition and his outer success and his outer persona, you know, that is obviously well, well known, well established, you know, out there. But Elvis was harboring, you know, very powerful inner hunger. Um, and that chapter and aspect of Elvis's life is in some ways even more beautiful and luminous. Um, you know, um, Priscilla, as you mentioned, his, his ex-wife, you know, she, she's observed, she said like he had been searching his entire life. He was convinced that his purpose was well beyond music and movies. Um, 
and he and he told one of his co-stars, he said, "I'm a, I'm not a man, I'm not a woman, I'm a soul, I'm I'm a spirit, you know, I'm I'm a force." And Self-Realization Fellowship, you know, the organization started by Yogananda, as you mentioned, many of your uh, listeners might might be aware of uh, uh, Yogananda and this teaching of a yoga-based kind of, you know, um, kind of inner faith, uh, you know, uh, invitation to really discover your full potential through a, a meditational practice and a how to live in teaching. Uh, so they have, uh, you know, an active presence in the Los Angeles area. And uh, Priscilla, you know, she she reflects and she mentions, she says, um, I have this very vivid picture in my mind. You know, it's a very clear sunny afternoon in Los Angeles. Elvis and I on our motorcycles, you know, roaring through Bel Air, down Sunset Boulevard, over the freeway, past Brentwood into Pacific Palisades. And we stop at an idyllic retreat called Self-Realization Fellowship Lake Shrine. Which, by the way, is a beautiful place for those of us who haven't been uh, to it. Uh, really, really encourage uh, uh, a visitation, right? Uh, so then she says, Elvis takes my hand and leads me through the grounds. For a long time, we sit in the meditation garden and focus on our attention and our breath. And I- I've never seen Elvis this calm. And then, and then he looks at her after a while and he says, "It's what we all need—a break from the craziness." Um, and then I, you know, I share a little bit more about how he later on went to the headquarters, Mother Center, also in the Los Angeles area of, of SRF. He met with the president there, befriended her. She's a very exalted nun, uh, you know, born Rachel Faye Wright, but then taking on the monastic name Dayamara, or like a mother of compassion. And they became really good, good friends. And and she counsels him, you know, from time to time as he as he really gets stirred, you know, with these inner deep hungers and wants to really accelerate his uh, spiritual advancement and take the teaching and then offer it to his, offer it to his uh, fans. And she affirms that hunger in him and affirms the value of going on the path, but also slows him down and says, look, I mean, this is, this requires practice. This requires discipline. It's not, it's not going to be something that you can just do overnight just because you're Elvis, which I admire you for, but it's going to take much more than that. And, uh, and unfortunately and painfully so, he wasn't able to get there, right? And before he could actually maybe get to that path of discipline, you know, the flame of life was extinguished, right, within him. Uh, but it's so beautiful to know about that inner Elvis because it makes you realize we're all the same, you know, we're all the same. We have this outer Elvis form to us that is hungering and pulled in various directions and wants to indulge and cruise and all of that stuff. And yet, and yet, you know, we can't escape from that. Even Elvis couldn't. There was that purity and that questing for something deeper and that connection with spirit that, uh, hey, if someone like Elvis could have it with all his indulgences and his successes and outer engagements, then like, obviously all of us have it, you know? I love it. I love it. So in closing, is there one thing that everyone, no matter where they are in their own journey, should do, could do that would help them on their path to inner mastery? You know, we're we're living in complicated times, Jason, as you know, um, and sometimes from time to time, it's really hard, you know, to decide what's right, what's wrong, and what to do about my health or my service to my, you know, aging parents or, you know, my financial decisions or where we live as a couple or whatever it is. 
And the thing is, I mean, science can take us some of that distance, but not often to a full place of clarity and insights about those questions. And experience can help us. But again, sometimes we really struggle with some of these choices. And similarly with faith, you know, reading the scriptures can help. But, you know, at times there's something more we're looking for. And so so the one, you know, one thing I perhaps want to leave our listeners with is to really tune in and listen to your inner voice. Because in some ways, that is where the universe is, you know, offering its whispers to us. And, you know, the inner voice isn't isn't just a uh, an entitlement, you know, isn't just a um, instant choice that we make that, oh, okay, let me just listen to my voice. And, you know, this is what I feel compelled to or moved to or, you know, pulled by. Because really, that thing that you've been compelled to and pulled by, is that your inner voice or is that really a compulsion or a habit or a desire or a hunger or an emotional surge or an attachment that you're experiencing in the moment, right? You've got to give all of that up before you earn the right to really fully tune in and listen to what that inner voice is saying. And so that's that's just a beautiful journey to go on, which is like, how do I connect more and more and more with the wisdom that resides at the very core of my being? And, you know, I'll just kind of end with the story Vince, uh, Vincent Sheehan, you know, he was an American journalist and he went to Gandhi. He was very inspired by Gandhi's, you know, kind of offering that a lot of the hard decisions and calls he'd made, including in India's, you know, independent struggle, very pivotal decisions that he made came from his inner voice, came from his inner voice. So he asked, he said, Mr. Gandhi, you talk about your inner voice, but many other people struggle with their inner voice. And some of them actually end up like listening to what they claim is their inner voice, but they go down some really dark paths and do really bad things. And so like, how can you trust it? You know, uh, you know, is it so that it's like, like first you have to confirm and know that it's the the true voice, you know, the true voice within. And then you surrender to it. You know, is that how you do it? You know, you first have to get get to be really sure. And he says that Gandhi looked at me as though like, what? Like, you know, did you like completely misunderstand what it is that I've been, you know, seeking to, you know, offer and tell you about my philosophy? Because what you said is the complete opposite. He said, because Gandhi told me, he said in that moment, he said, he said, it's the complete opposite. He said, it's not that you first have to be convinced that it's the right thing. And then you surrender to it. It's that you first surrender and then you will know that it's the right inner voice that you're listening to because it's in the act of surrendering, right? Surrendering our desires, our attachments, a need for a certain outcome, a view of a certain way to think about truth. I'm not going to entertain these ideas. I'm only going to entertain this and whatever it is it might be that clutters our mind and creates a lot of noise within. When we can let all of that go, we get to that space of like, Pure silence, pure silence. And that silence, you know, allows our inner voice to break its silence. Uh, and that's just, a, that's just a beautiful place. And, you know, any or all of us get to it from time to time and then we lose it. And some of us have systems and methods to get to it. So that would be my one encouragement to all of us, which is, hey, you know, befriend that friend, that beautiful friend right at the very core of your being. Listen to it, tune into it. But that requires, you know, some discipline and some capacity to live with a state of surrender. I love it. We'll close there. Atendra, thank you so much. Oh, I'm very grateful, Jason. This was uh, soul-stirring for me, and uh, I wish all the best to our listeners, and uh, very grateful to you for all that you're doing to bring voices like yours and listeners and you know, folks like myself together. Thank you.